Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to start by just saying thank you. I have often felt that the closer that you get, the closer that I get to gratitude, the less the for, in English the preposition for, drops off of thank you. The thank you for cooking, thank you for cleaning, thank you for coming, because that list, it's just so wide and huge and I was thinking about that for all of you and it's just so wide and huge and I just feel really close and it's it's just thank you when I was planning this talk I wanted to write a dharma talk that would speak to our grief um, the different ways that's being experienced by all of us here and around the world um, as sorrow, as anger, as numbness, as betrayal, as pain, as tenderness of heart, as love. But the problem with that is that my experience has primarily been sadness, compassion, and love. And I was really struggling with how to address and hold all of those different experiences when my own was just what it was. I wanted to give rest and understanding to those who need more time, who have always rushed through or pushed away dark feelings, and may need to sort of saturate themselves a bit first. Um, to encourage that the way through is always, as we know, through dukkha, through suffering, not around and not in parts, but wholly, fully, with breath and support. I wanted to cheer on those lingering and stuck in pain or anger to really feel it arise and also move through. To remember that love is behind it all. That sorrow is the exact size of our love. 
and to remind us all to look at the trees uh, and remember that there's more to this moment than just what we're feeling. To go wide and to step into your full, full, wide heart space, which I can actually feel a lot of us already doing. Um, yesterday, Rose read Michael's quote um, that we're not alone, and that quote so often reminds me of the African proverb, which is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that as we're choosing not to go alone, to encourage you to go even wider and larger with that, because that there is a heart and an intelligence in the trees and in the river and in stone buildings and in the birds and in silence and in the sky, and to include those two. I basically wanted to write a perfect Dharma talk. <laughs> Um, and so I woke up a few days ago, almost a week ago now, in Bordeaux to continue working on these talks and was just filled with complete anxiety, um, which now that I've gone back to school for um, a degree in psychology is becoming an old friend that I've learned how to be intimate with. And I know that turning to Dharma teachings always help. So I went to the book that I brought with me for this trip, which is by Tim Burkett, who is a um, close student of Shinra Suzuki. And I read a passage where he describes a time in his life when he was really struggling in his sitting practice and um, was himself struck by a Dharma teaching by a lyric from a Bob Dylan song, which was, without ideals of violence. And this is the passage that struck me. One reason practice became so hard for me was that I had an ideal that I was clinging to. My ideal was that I should do Zen practice with grace. And maybe we have a bit of that ideal sometimes ourselves. But I was stumbling through it with no grace at all, which I think we also can relate to. Ideals are frequently about should or shouldn't. They have nothing to do with what's actually going on. Too often, they provoke violent thoughts. We are limited and bullied by them. Just showing up each morning and evening was all I needed to do. It was only at that moment that I realized I had been trying to write the perfect Dharma talk. And in that moment of realizing that that was going on, my anxiety just fully dropped away. And I smiled at myself, um, as we usually do when we catch ourselves getting caught. Um, or when we mess up with the forms. Um, or when we're getting really tight and contracted and remember, oh, that's right, we can just relax.
basically when we recognize that avidya is showing up in our lives, that suffering that comes from trying to match what's actually happening with what we want to be happening. I wanted to write a perfect Dharma talk, and what was happening is that I don't know. I don't know the perfect thing to say to you. Tim, in that passage, mentions the word should, which is a word that I've long worked with, watching out for in my speech, and that I often give as something to work with when I'm working one-on-one with people. It's a really sort of vine-like weed, I think, in our culture. And if we really watch for when that word wants to creep in, and then try to say the same thing, but without using the word should, it can really shift what's going on. I should go for a run. I love how my body feels when I sweat and use my legs in that way and breathe heavily and how strong I feel. And all of that is really what I mean when I say I should go for a run. But I say should, and it totally changes it and adds a different dimension to it. I should remember to bow. I should remember not to be thinking so much in meditation. I should walk slower. I have a habit from living in a city of walking really fast. And when I do that, I miss things all the time around me. And it sets a rhythm in my heart and in my breathing and in my mind that isn't nourishing. How we use language is so important. How we describe to ourselves and to others what's happening is half of what shapes our viewpoints along with what we attend to. Here, as we start to use language less and less with each other, it allows the internal language also to settle, which maybe also hopefully you're starting to feel. And then our viewpoint can widen, and we can start to reside and rest back in that wide heart or big sky mind, at least for a few moments. And then we get to be nourished. But I realized in working through that, that that should energy, that idealizing energy, is really sneaky. And it doesn't always show up in words. Because I wasn't saying to myself, I should write a perfect Dharma talk. Um, it It was just there, hiding out. And I learned that when I'm experiencing some suffering... Uh, and that I can maybe check in and see if it's from this avidya, from this misalignment that usually occurs because the ideals of what we want to be happening uh, instead of what's actually happening. And once we're able to fully and honestly, and there's a little like fierce honesty that has to come out of that, because I mean, I didn't want to admit to myself I was trying to be perfect. Um, that doesn't feel 
so great. Um, but if you can actually really admit what it is that you're ideally wanting, uh, it's they lose their energy pretty quickly um, and can be let go of. And then we can just make the step into what's actually happening. The full quote again was, without ideals of violence. And so those are all ways in which uh, formulating ideals and thoughts of perfection create a, a form of violence in ourselves and some suffering. But that also occurs with others and does a form of violence to the relationships that we have with others. Um, I had... So many ways in which I thought that there were ideals that I should be living into to be part of the um, mentorship program with Rose and Caitlin with Michael. And we would have uh, Michael and I, our monthly meetings, and more than once <laughs> this would come up, this idea that I had these ideals of what I, I was supposed to be doing. Um, and he'd be like, well, what do you think? What do you think I want you to be? And it was instantaneously in me going to say these things that they dropped away because just I knew they weren't true. <laughs> and I would say to him, as I, to be fully myself and to have practice at the center of my life. And he would do that sort of like sideways smile a little bit that he does and nod and not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I also had a lot of ideals about Michael, um, which, especially at the beginning of mentorship, kept a certain distance and separation in relationships, um, where he was like this, so really big, and then there was Jen. <laughs> um, and that prevents you from really seeing another person and from letting yourself be fully seen. Like, I was only like showing this little tiny part of myself. And that was part of the work when you work really closely with um, someone is, is working through that. And that's where intimacy arises from. And maybe you had or still have ideals about Michael or about who you think Michael wanted you to be that are creating maybe a little bit suffering still that can be let go of. Or ideals about what this practice is, how your sits will be, what your practice position is, who your partner is, who your children will be, your job, your town, or who a country leader should be, which is actually like a big one for <laughs> me and my country right now. <laughs> Maybe for you looking at my country right now. So that's not to say that in letting go of um, ideals that we don't, um, that we ignore injustice or wrongdoing, that we passively accept. Bernie Glassman 
has said that uh, the Bodhisattva speaks out on these matters because it's important for the well-being of others. But what distinguishes the way they do it from the way that maybe so many people might speak out against injustices and wrongdoings is that the way they speak unites rather than divides. Unites rather than divides. Language is so important. And as we're going about the retreats, can we wonder, how is the way that we're describing what's going on to ourselves functioning? Is it uniting? Is it dividing? And where can we relax and let go and let language settle down a bit more? In the yoga tradition, there's the idea of vak city. Vak is the word for speech, where we eventually get voice in English. And city means like power or benefit. Uh, so the power of speech. In the yoga sutras, the results of satya, of, of having a firm practice and grounding in satya or honesty, is that what you say happens which sounds a bit like magic, like, da it happens. Um, but what actually is going on is that you keep letting go of the ideals and stepping into what actually is happening. So over time, your speech is just really aligned with what's happening. So from the outside, it seems like magic. But for you, you're just speaking. I can't write the perfect Dharma talk because it doesn't exist. And that's the thing with ideals. And part of why they can hurt us so much is because they don't exist. So instead, can we keep coming into contact with this moment, this wide moment, fully see and let yourself be fully seen? And as Tim would say, just show up each morning and afternoon and evening. And I would add to ask yourself, how am I showing up? Am I uniting or dividing? Can I meet with a whole wide heart, moment to moment to moment? Letting go of ideas and ideals of what's happening now. And letting that include the trees and the stones and the acorns and other people. And that's sometimes really easy and also really hard. So I wanted to share a story um, as encouragement. This is from Reb Anderson's book about um, Upright, which those of you who have taken the ethics course have read, so it might be familiar to you. 
a cantor who is um, sort of is like Dixie for okay. in, in Jewish communities. So the, the lead chanter. A cantor named Michael Weiser and his wife Julie had moved with their family from Chicago to Lincoln, Nebraska. And for those of you who aren't familiar with how that lands in uh, the States, Lincoln or uh, Chicago is a major city, sort of in the in the northern area in the middle of the country. Uh, and Lincoln, Nebraska is further west and very rural. I didn't even know that Lincoln, Nebraska existed until I read this story. So to give you context. They felt that their children probably would be exposed to less anti-Semitism there than they experienced in the big city. As it turned out, the Grand Dragon of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Nebraska, Larry Trapp, lived there. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with the KKK, they're like a, their mission in life is to hate other people, basically, and make their lives awful. When he found out that the Weissers were living in Lincoln, he turned his ongoing campaign of hate, hate mail, and phone threats against them. So can you just imagine that for a moment? Like, there's this person who's, like, in charge of that organization, and he's, like, zoned in on you and your family. Of course, the Weissers were alarmed to experience such violent prejudice and were at first quite angry. However, after some time, the cantor had a change of heart because his, he felt his faith taught him to love his enemies. And he wanted to put his faith into practice. Julie agreed, and they contacted the, dra the Grand Dragon by phone with friendly intentions. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, how do you even start that phone call? I don't, I don't know. Uh, the Weiser family found out that Larry Trapp was a diabetic, confined to a wheelchair, and going blind. So they called and kindly offered to help him with his grocery shopping. His first response was an angry no. But after a pause, his mood changed, and he thanked them for offering. The Weissers continued in their attempts to embrace their enemy. Finally, Michael suggested that they prepare a dinner and take it to his apartment to share together. He reluctantly accepted their offer. Larry did. When one of the cantor's friends heard about their plan, he admonished Michael for going too far. Nevertheless, the Weissers did go to Larry Trapp's apartment. It was a dark and sad place with pictures of Hitler on the wall. But the dinner went fairly well. <laughs> Again, I don't know how, but gradually, Larry Trapp softened and his hostility subsided. 
he told the Weissers how his father had taught him to hate everything that was different from his white Christian family. Later, when speaking of that dinner, Larry Trapp explained that he just couldn't resist the Weissers anymore. He had never known love like that before in his life. Larry Trapp completely let go of his hatred and was transformed. He resigned from the Klan and wrote formal letters of apology to groups representing African Americans, Native Americans, and Jewish Americans. When diagnosed as terminally ill, he even moved in with the Weiser family and converted to Judaism before his death. <laughs> so. There is so much to love about that story. One teaching is that it was delayed. Their first response was fear and anger. It's so hard. It is a fierce, radical practice to turn towards a situation with love. We forget and have to try and remember again and again and again. that our first response is not always or usually how we want to be showing up, but how we're meeting a situation is something that we have a choice over. And we can stop and begin again, moment to moment to moment. And so while no one here is experiencing that kind of challenge to their hearts, there are still other ones that happen. Um, maybe they're showing up in the often lamented feelings towards the timekeeper. Maybe um, it's towards the person in the upstairs lodging that wakes up just that half hour before you wanted to get up and sort of forces you to get up anyway. <laughs> um, the faster or slower walker in front of you than you want them to be. The acorns on the ground. There's still opportunities for this radical practice. Like, how do you love that acorn as it's digging into your foot? <laughs> I don't know. But that's our practice, right? Meeting with your whole wide heart, moment to moment to moment, letting go of ideas and ideals of what's happening now, and letting that include the trees and the stones and people and grass. This morning, Rosa's instruction during meditation, uh, where she said, let the body settle onto the body. Like, I really felt that. And I really felt, sitting cross-legged for the first time, 
how your legs form kind of like a heart. <laughs> Maybe noticed that before. I had never had. And I was like, our very foundation is love. Which we can really feel and open wide to on retreat. And then also not so much. There's the opening and contracting. That's what we're doing in meditation. We get contracted around an idea or a feeling. And then remember we can relax and let it go and we open up a bit. That's what we do in our jobs. When it feels a lot like we're the ones doing it. Like, I'm cleaning the sink. I'm ringing the bell. I'm trying to give a perfect Dharma talk. We contract, but then we can remember that we're doing it for everybody else. It's not about us. When I was meeting with the timekeepers on the first day, um, I told them when that was my job, um, which is the first retreat I was on, which was <laughs> so intimidating. Um, before I'd ring the bell, I would actually visualize or try to remember to visualize a little tiny heart inside everybody's chest in the zendo. And I would just like try to picture that before I rang the bell. And when I remembered to do that and could really uh, feel it, the ringing was always better, always better. I was looking at my notebooks from previous retreats and um, I was really stopped by something that Michael said on last year's retreat when he was talking about the paramitas, which is that we don't just practice for ourselves, we practice for others. Because if we just practice for ourselves, when it got hard, we would stop. Because why would you stay sitting still with your knee in agony and constant thoughts? Like, if it was just for you, go get a massage. It's <laughs> better, right? <laughs> um, but we don't stop because it's not just for ourselves. We're practicing for others. And we do that, and then we contract. And then we remember again. And we remember our wide heart. And these contractions and expansions are necessary um, because if we just flew wide open all at once, we would probably break. You couldn't sustain it, right? You have to build that foundation. Which reminds me, the latter part, and then the whole thing was perfect. The poem, um, the famous poem of Rumi's Bird Wings. Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look, and instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist, 
were always stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding, the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. Can I read just one more poem? I love poems. So this is called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hands, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all the sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Thank you.